got a special episode for you today on the Business in Morocco podcast. We're interviewing the founder of SOS Credit Emo, Bashir Benslaman. Due to the length of this interview, we're going to break it up into two different episodes. Part one will focus mainly on his history, his education, his work in the United States and in Europe, and some of the entrepreneurial adventures he's had in his past. Part two will focus on his current business, SOS Credit Emo, which is an online mortgage company that allows borrowers and customers to either get a home loan or refinance their existing loan without ever having to visit a bank. There's a lot of technical jargon in this episode, a lot of complicated financial and startup and technical terms. So I'll be pausing the episode from time to time and breaking in just to explain some of these words and phrases so that you're better able to follow the conversation. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. Today we're going to be talking with the founder of SOS Credit Emo, Bashir Benslaman. Thanks for taking the time, Bashir, to sit down and talk with us. My pleasure. Let's start. Could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up mm-hmm. and your education and what role English played in your education? So I grew up in uh, Casablanca, 1st of May, 1983. English has uh, played a vital role in my uh, career. I actually was I, one of the lucky ones here in Morocco to attend uh, Casablanca American High School. So at a very early age, my uh, father and my parents, uh, they recognized the value of uh, actually uh, their children uh, studying in an uh, English-speaking school. So I attended the Casablanca American High School and I eventually graduated uh, in 2000. Afterwards, I went to the U.S., to, to Boston, to complete a Bachelor's of Corporate Finance and Accounting at Bentley University, which was a great experience. And yeah, so English definitely played a viral role vital role as uh, today I just uh, completed a, a fundraising round the the lead investor is uh, an American-based fund <laughs> oh that's great yeah that's great so tell us a little bit about after college mm-hmm. what did you do did you stay in the United States did you move somewhere else uh, yeah that's a very interesting question actually I stayed uh, in the US for a few years First, I started working at uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers at a global uh, risk management uh, solutions uh, team. Basically did that for uh, a year or so and then I was hired, I got an offer from uh, a competing firm. So I transferred to Ernst & Young and I did uh, pretty much the same job uh, working as a best practices consultant which was a great experience. I got to actually uh, like discover uh, different companies in different industries and travel a lot across the US. So that was a very enriching experience from a professional perspective. I got sponsored for a green card. So I actually uh, was seeing myself staying for a few more years. Being sponsored for a green card is pretty complicated for a lot of people. So. I considered myself lucky to actually be chosen to, to get sponsored for a green card. But as my application went through the immigration system, so it was approved. But since I did not have a master's yet, and I was not at the manager uh, 
level yet. I was told that I was approved, but in a category where I would need to wait at least five years before I got the green card. And I might even wait two more years because there were like uh, extremely long delays in processing uh, uh, green cards. So at that very moment, I remember when the, my lawyer called me to tell me that it would probably be seven years before I got a green card, I quit that very second. I walked into my office and I said bye to everyone. And I picked up my stuff and then I went home and I was like, all right, so I've been so serious for like the past six years, just like focusing. I finished a seven um, in university. I was taking seven classes at the same time and working two part-time jobs. Wow. Okay. So I had to get special authorization from the dean to go at this pace. Uh, he granted it and then so I finished uh, my double major in like uh, two years and a half and then I started working like super hardcore just to be able to get the chance uh, of getting sponsored for a green card so I was focusing on work like uh, full throttle and then when I got that call like it completely changed my plans completely so I like uh, because you could have stayed in your job yes but when you realize that earning the green card could take seven years yes exactly that changed your plan yeah definitely especially when she said and i remember this she said uh, like and if you ever leave the us for more than six months you may lose the green card if even after having obtained it so i'd wait seven years and if i ever want to do a year off run a risk of actually losing like sacrificing seven years in the same country to actually get the green card. So I was like, no, no, this is definitely, this is definitely not for me because I did not plan on staying as a full-time employee anywhere for like a total of 10 years before I would actually start my own business. I, I had like uh, the ambition of starting something like within two or three years maximum. So, so in the back of your mind, mm -hmm. while you had this job, and you were applying for the green card. When you realized you wouldn't get the green card, did you think to yourself, there are opportunities in Morocco? No, no, definitely. The ultimate goal was coming back to Morocco to, to, to start a company and uh, give back to, to, to my country and create jobs. That was the ultimate goal. I was ready to make a sacrifice for a few years to actually get the green card and then maybe start a, then. I would not need to stay within the same job once I get the green card and I could eventually start perhaps a business in the US and then eventually come back to Morocco and do more things. So this was my first plan. So when I realized that uh, uh, things were not going according to plan, so I, like, I, I needed to shift plans really quickly, get out of my comfort zone and like uh, think of plan B. The reason I ask you about this is because since I arrived in Morocco, the number one question that I get from Moroccans, why are you living in Morocco if you could live in the United States, if you could work in the United States, or if you could live or work in Europe? But your plan the whole time was to come back and live and work here in Morocco. Talk to our listeners a little bit about the opportunities that you see here in Morocco and what really was driving you back here to start a business? The number one reason for me to actually come back is that I've always planned to come back because uh, 
for existential reasons, you know, like uh, when you start thinking about the purpose of life and whatnot, why were you meant to be born in Morocco to even start with? So I was thinking, I was always, uh, I always had the ambition of actually doing something wow, like something big for my country, you know, like I looked up to people who were creating uh, uh, systems by which uh, certain businesses that, I, that they created could actually sponsor and fundraise charitable, honorable causes. I looked up to people who, who actually made a lot of money and eventually were able to fund like scholarships for people and hospitals and whatnot. So like my dream has always been to uh, get to a certain point in my life where I'd actually, like, like people do in the US, dedicate 99% of their funds to actually charitable causes. So this was my ultimate goal. And number two, my parents had sacrificed so much for, for my education and that of my uh, siblings that I couldn't think of uh, any other choice but to stay close to them. So that's uh, at any point in time, they want to see their children. I have children right now. I cannot envision uh, my son actually us living apart for too long. Like 10 years is good, but it would be like you know, extremely difficult to actually envision my son living for 30 years, like in another country. I mean, like. So, you made this decision once you heard about the green card situation. Mm -hmm. You made the decision to come back to Morocco. What did you do next? So, uh, first, I took a break because I've I was focusing uh, so hard on work. Uh, I didn't actually take any time off to enjoy myself and uh, you know live what you see in movies and Hollywood and whatnot. So I actually took like uh, almost uh, three months off and I just traveled and I just had like one of the best times of my life. And once I felt after maybe three to four months that I that okay I had enough fun. All right, I won't, I won't regret it, you know, that uh, I actually stayed six years in the U.S. without uh, just focusing on work and sports and uh, on personal development and reading or whatnot. Now I feel like I've enjoyed myself. Time to, t to, to, to start like plan B. So plan B, being Moroccan with a Moroccan passport, you're actually a bit limited with what countries you can travel to without requesting a visa and whatnot. I want to go back to Morocco, but I wouldn't mind going through Europe and securing like my, my residency paperwork over there. Europe being close to Morocco, I thought that was the best plan for the long run. I went to, I actually went back to Spain. So I enjoyed another couple of weeks in southern Spain. And then uh, that's when uh, I hit it. I hit the road, I went down to Morocco. And then uh, I started uh, like planning. Uh, I started planning the future. So I actually started a, a real estate uh, investment advisory company. As uh, real estate was always something that uh, it was that I found appealing. Real estate being like one of the basic needs of humankind. So if I could, right. you know, work with that, that would be good. And the real estate finance was also appealing. So I would like. Uh, uh, I would read books of all these real estate finance moguls and whatnot, and like interesting deals they were doing. And I thought, you know, real estate finance would be like something really cool. So I started a real estate investment advisory 
firm and I uh, so providing uh, advisory services to international investors who were interested in the Moroccan market. So I was I actually set up the office in uh, in Spain. I was living in Marbella. So I lived in Marbella for like uh, a couple of years, but I was traveling a lot to Madrid and Barcelona. I started pitching, 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 pitching everyone, 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 everyone under the sun. When Bashir talks about pitching, 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 what he's talking about is doing business development. He's engaging potential clients and customers and talking to them about the value proposition of the services that he offers and trying to convince them to become his clients and pay him to do work for them. Doing a lot of meetings and then uh, I started getting my first uh, clients. Yeah, I actually even uh, had the <laughs> crazy call one day. You know, I set up my office in Marbella in my flats basically. So I didn't have a budget to actually rent offices and I was not gonna raise funds for like this small business, you know. And uh, one day, this huge investor actually saw my ad on a business forum and it ended up being Goldman Sachs. Wow. And they were interested in me providing advisory services for them specific to something confidential. Okay. okay so that was really cool. And I started advising uh, French, this French company that was based also based in Spain, but was very attracted by the Moroccan market. And then this British uh, real estate development company, investment company based in London was also was also considering this deal in Morocco and they really wanted to work with me. They, they, they found the website and they called me and they're like, can you provide us with advisory service? So it started like that. And I was like, okay, as soon as I got my residency card in Spain, so all right, that target's off the list. So I was like, all right, time to go down to Morocco and see what I can do like on the ground. This episode is brought to you by Click Aporté. Clickaporté.com is a groundbreaking online shopping platform that allows individuals and businesses in Morocco to purchase goods online from a wide range of international marketplaces and pay in dirhams. You can pay by credit card, certified check, wire transfer, and soon, cash plus. Clickaporté manages the entire process, clears customs, and delivers right to your door. Their prices are transparent and clearly communicated at the time of checkout. They have a no surprises policy, which means you pay what you agreed to pay, even if customs or shipping charges are higher than expected. Can you see how exciting this is? You can use the ClickApporte app, shop on Amazon in Spain or France, order what you want and pay in dirhams. You don't worry about the douane, it just shows up at your door. ClickApporte, you want it, we get it. Now back to the show. So I went down to Morocco. What year was that? This was in 2008. So I went down, pitched uh, one of the biggest companies in Morocco. At the time it was called Ona, and their real estate subsidiary was called Ona Par. And Ona today is called Almada, which is the biggest holding company in Morocco. So I pitched them, proposed my advisory services, they were the only ones I actually pitched. And maybe one of my friends is going to listen to this podcast. He was with me the day uh, I actually printed the, that brochure and uh, dropped it at the reception to the attention of the CEO. And they actually called me back and they're like, OK, can you do some valuation services for us? Uh, we have a lot of real estate we'd like to value. We'd like your brochure, your track record. 
this is great. So I actually started working with them a lot. They were like my biggest clients. That's when I uh, actually got two, two ideas. Uh, the first one, I wanted uh, to be RIC certified, which is the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors, to get like accreditations. The second thing was to get my master's. And the best school in the world in real estate finance happened to be just outside of London. It's called Henley Business School. It's part of Reading University. Best real estate finance professors in the world. So I applied to Henley Business School. I got accepted. And I went to London to get my master's in real estate finance. So working part-time and actually completing my master's, I started uh, thinking, could I do something? It's, it's called the Medici effect. Could I, it's nothing fancy, but when you, when you take two completely different industries like internet, digital advertising, digital, and perhaps real estate finance, could I do something between the two that would be nice because there was nothing at the time. So why not create a real estate portal? You know, there were, there were none, none. There was a general classified uh, ads website, just like Craigslist, but there were no vertical classified uh, websites. So I, was, I started preparing a business plan for uh, launching the first uh, Moroccan real estate portal. And while working on the business plan, I discovered digital advertising. I'm like, I'm looking for digital agencies to, to help me with data to complete my business plan. So I'm contacting a couple of them. At the time, there were maybe like three or four in the, in the entire nation. So I contacted the, the best one uh, at, the, at the time and they, they wouldn't uh, give me the time of day. Like I was sending them emails, you know, coming back from the US and whatnot. So you, when you don't get, if not an automatic reply to an email, you know, and uh, no response when you're actually, you could represent some future potential business. You know, like you ask yourself questions. I'm like, uh, this is the biggest digital advertising agency in the market. And yet they're not even answering a potential customer. This is crazy. So I started digging. Uh, I'm like, I can't rely on this agency as a future partner. And if there aren't other agencies that would qualify as a future partner, an agency that would perhaps like sell my ad space or refer clients to me or whatnot, isn't this perhaps the best time to actually create a digital advertising agency that would be complementary with my real estate portal? So you had a need yeah. for your own business idea. Exactly. And you went in search of that need. Exactly. And when you realized mm -hmm. that no one was effectively providing that service, yeah. you got the idea to start your own yes, marketing exactly. company. Yeah, exactly. My own digital advertising agency. So I actually... Uh, I took the time. I took uh, overall uh, maybe 12 months to prepare. I was doing a lot of research, so I knew exactly what their strengths were, what their weaknesses were, what their clients were, their products, their services, absolutely everything under the sun. Like everything you can know about this market, I, I already had that data basically. I did a lot of research. And what were the two or three things that you realized were the most important that you could differentiate yourself yeah. in the market? Number one is transparency. There are many different ways you can sell ad space. So you can actually sell it uh, through a cost per thousand impressions, CPM. You can sell it at a cost per click, 
So every time a user clicks on the banner, you can sell it at a CPL cost per lead, you can sell it at a CPA cost per action, etc. And these people were selling ad space on Facebook for a monthly fee. The clients didn't even know that they could purchase ad space for a CPC or a CPL or a CPA or whatever, you know? So this was like complete lack of transparency, even in terms of reporting. They weren't reporting all the types of metrics that they could effectively report back to the client. So there was no room for improvement of the campaigns. This is one. They were strictly limited to just selling ad space to people who didn't know how to buy ad space and they were charging pretty much, they were charging uh, 50 cents uh, the CPM when they were buying it at uh, 0.03 of a dollar which was like, they were making 90% margins on this. So I thought, you know, like this is too much, you know, like this is like, take, you know, like you're completely taking people for stupid. Well, not know? much has changed. Today you can buy an, a Facebook impression for a penny, yeah, for yeah, fractions of, of a Durham. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But, but uh, uh, I know many agencies today who uh, will charge you like uh, a campaign management fee, but they will disclose exactly uh, everything about the campaign they will provide you with good reporting uh, uh, they will actually attach themselves as the administrator of the campaign but you'll you'll stay as the owner of the group of the campaign you'll always have like complete control over your accounts there is definitely more transparency and i think we've participated a lot a lot Did that change yes definitely 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 what were some other ways that you differentiated yourself in the marketplace yeah the second thing was uh, we actually were became a full service agency so most of these uh, digital advertising agencies were basically they were basically just selling ad space and introducing like digital advertising to advertise for the first time and what we did is offer like a full service agency so basically we introduced everything you could do in digital advertising, like absolutely everything, as if you were in the US. So you have two things you can do for clients. You can do either creative work or you can do uh, media work. In the creative work, we were offering every service under the sun. So we could either advise you and take care of everything social media related, starting your first fan page, your first Twitter account, your first channel in whatever social media to actually managing that social media for you full time and we could even produce like digital activations such as advert games and like all types of games and all types of like digital activations so this was really fun we could also produce any kind of website we did augmented reality we did things that were new even abroad produce so many so many advert games uh, managing uh, like uh, on a full-time basis uh, the fan page of coca-cola like we had to be approved by atlanta to actually manage this account so talk to us then a little bit about how you acquired your customers yeah. how did you convince these brands yeah to let you handle their marketing number one i partnered with a big advertising firm. I started off by handling their accounts and they were managed by other uh, agencies which did not offer any of the services we were offering. This was, uh, so it was pretty easy to actually convince them to start working with. 
this was number one. Number two, we were everything we're doing was completely new and creative uh, in the Moroccan market. So talking, other advertisers were seeing our advert games. They were seeing the quality of our social media management. They were seeing the quality of everything we were doing, and they were like pretty much sending us emails and uh, trying to book meetings. At one point, we reached a portfolio of 250 advertisers. We, we occupied uh, pretty much uh, 480 meters squared of office space, and there were more than 37 people working here. Wow, so you did such a good job servicing your customers mm -hmm. that all of your leads became inbound leads. Inbound. All right, let's talk a little bit about the difference between inbound marketing and outbound marketing. Outbound marketing is where a company has employees who actively go out looking for customers and clients. They may call them on the phone in a call center. They may have sales agents that go out and knock door to door trying to find new customers. There may be a team that sends out emails or text messages to prospective clients or customers in order to get their business. So these are all examples of outbound marketing. Inbound marketing is where people find your business through word of mouth or through referrals. And what Bashir is talking about is that his business, his marketing company did so well and got such a great reputation that through word of mouth, they were getting so many companies calling them asking for their services that they actually had to turn down clients and customers because they were too busy. Inbound. There were, they were, there were many times when I actually had to, like I couldn't take uh, more business. We, we actually imposed like such strict terms and conditions in the contracts just to discourage them actually from taking this any further. So you felt that it was necessary to make sure that you slowed your growth down yeah, so that you continued yeah. to do a good job? Yeah, yeah. We, we definitely refused business, yeah, definitely. We actually reached 40% market share. So I guess we should mention the name of this agency, yeah. which was Marshmallow Digital. Exactly. You founded that in 2011. Exactly. And you ran it for a few years and you yeah. grew it to yeah. what you said, 40% market share. Exactly. Then what happened? And then I got an offer to buy me. So we actually explored that deal uh, for a few months. Uh, we actually signed a contract. We got to an agreement. But certain terms being added to the shareholder agreements and basically revolved around me not being able to launch any other businesses on the site. And this like uh, just completely blew it because it wasn't the ultimate end point and goal for me. It was not to actually just sell and then just uh, remain as the CEO of this company. I, I had like more ambitious plans. So the offer had a contingency yeah. that you continue to work for the business. Exactly. And not be able to run any other company on the site. So what did you do? So we dropped it. Did the agency continue working? No. Uh, I wanted to like shut it down because I realized over time uh, there were there were opportunities that I that I shouldn't miss and that I needed to shift my focus on other projects that were 100% more scalable and more sustainable. Uh, having not found uh, someone who'd actually run 
the business like this amount of staff and this amount of business so we decided to actually shut it down okay and we shifted the focus to something else and what was that what was your new focus so the new focus was actually exploring we were still in an exploring mode so exploring approximately six opportunities at the same time we we didn't know exactly which project uh, out of these six was going to take off first and highest so we didn't know but we knew they were they were equally they were equally attractive opportunities so i actually almost shifted the 37 people across these six products i gave them a, like let's say a second chance let's do something else okay okay that's all for part one of this two episode interview with the founder of SOS Credit Emo, Bashir Bensleman. In the second part, we'll hear all about his six ideas that he pursued and how he chose soscreditemo.ma as the best idea of the six and the one to focus on. You've been listening to the Business in Morocco podcast. My name is Ryan Kirk, here with my co-host, Ryan Maimon. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Download our entire library of podcasts on our website, moroccopodcast.com, where you'll also find extra resources related to each episode in the show notes, including a transcript of the show. If you've got a question or topic you think we should cover on the podcast, fill out the form on moroccopodcast.com or email us at ryan at moroccopodcast.com and we'll give you a shout out on the show. Our theme music is Lovely Day by Bill Withers, used under Creative Commons, and we hope you'll have a lovely day doing business in Morocco. We'll see you next time. Yeah, yeah, yeah.